0: So have you ever had any stromboli? Ever had any stromboli? Stromboli is kinda like a little uh, turnover. It's made out of a Italian bread dough. It's got cheese and, and meat in it. It's a great word, stromboli. The the word just sounds like some fantastic word from ancient Rome, right? I mean you can just hear Julius Caesar call his little servant over, Giuseppe, have Domizio make me a stromboli for lunch today. It's just a word that kind of rolls off the lips. But that would be historically inaccurate because a stromboli is not a food from ancient Rome. The first time that we see the word stromboli is not in Italy and it wasn't until 1950 and it was in Philadelphia of all places. April 10th, 1950 in the Philadelphia Inquirer there was a column of of random sentences, random phrases just kind of describing some things that were happening in and around the Philly area. The name of the column was called It's Happening Here. It was written by Frank Brookhauser. And down in the middle of his little paragraph of things happening in and around Philly was this phrase. In South Philadelphia, the hoagie sandwich is now called stromboli. That's it. (laughs) No other commentary, just this this little random sentence. Now, it is possible that a few months earlier that Frank Brookhauser could have been in Nat Romano's pizzeria. Because Nat was over there trying to experiment with some food, and, and he came up with this new experiment, and somebody came in and said, hey, you ought to call that thing Stromboli. And, and so they did. Romano's Pizzeria was in Essington in Delaware County, just outside of Philadelphia proper, and the only reason that we know what Stromboli is is because of where that place was located. One journalist of the Philadelphia Inquirer, Joseph Gambardello, puts it this way. Thanks to visiting flight crews from nearby Philadelphia International Airport who stayed at a hotel in Essington or shared crash pads in the waterfront town, the Stromboli spread far beyond its Delco, Delaware County, roots. Now this is cool. I know this to be true because our own Rick Wright, when he is out flying places, he's telling me and texting me where he's eaten, and I've been to some of those places he's eaten. Pilots know where to eat. It's a good thing. I like it, and I keep up. And so these pilots, the airport was just down the road from Romano's, and, and so they would go. They'd get these Stromboli's, and man, they started telling everybody about these Stromboli's. Seventy years later, Romano's pizzeria is still going strong. It is estimated that they sell between 25,000 and 30,000 strombolis a year. <laughs> that is a lot of strombolis. So, so over this time, the stromboli has, has put out some, some pretty significant branches out into the world. It's gone from just one pizzeria outside of Philly to, to feeding twenty-five to 30,000 people a year. And beyond that, the stromboli is on all kinds of menus of all kind of restaurants all over the country and maybe even beyond. Now, how in the world did the stromboli do all that? Well, it's because the stromboli has good roots. It's got good bread. It's got good cheese. It's got good meat. Or as one slogan that I would still could say, Better ingredients, better stromboli, right? The stromboli had, had roots, and so it has grown. It has made its presence all over our country. What about you? What are your ingredients? What, what are you made of? What makes you tick? What, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Or put another way, what are your Roots. What are your roots? And why do your roots matter? Why does it matter what kind of roots you have? Well, let's see if we can find out. Psalm 1, verse 3, the psalmist says this, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So who is he? Says, he will be like a tree. So who is this he? Well, the he is describing the type of man or woman who is happy, blessed, fortunate, satisfied, and content. You know, those things that none of us really want in our lives. But that's the description that he's given. So what kind of person is happy and blessed and fortunate and satisfied and content? Well, he just told us in the previous verse. Listen to it, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and day. Night. So if you delight in the truth of God as found in the Bible, if you delight in that, if you read the Bible and you think about the Bible, if you meditate on the things you read in the Bible, if you marinate on the things that you read in the Bible, if you memorize the things that you read in the Bible, you are positioning your life to be happy and blessed and fortunate and content and satisfied. And then the psalmist takes it just a step more, and he gives a little more description. He says, you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. So here's a question for your heart. Are you a tree like that? Are you a tree like that? Are you planted by streams of water? Maybe put more practically, are you are reading the Bible? Do you, do you engage with the Bible? Do you memorize portions of the Bible? Do you meditate and, and marinate on the Bible? Is the, is the Bible part of your life? Now, some might be thinking, great, I came to church, and that's all I need is a guilt trip about reading my Bible. Yeah, that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah, I got a Bible. and." I try to read it, but, you know, it's hard, and it's just kind of boring, and I can't binge watch it. So, you know, it's just, it's just not a thing I can get into. And, and truthfully, I mean, i got things happening in my life right now that I don't know how that old book is really going to help me. It's 2020. How, how can the Bible really help me? Well, I can promise you one thing I don't want to do is give you a guilt trip. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm like any of you. I highly dislike guilt trips. I don't like to be told or being given a, a guilt trip for what I'm not doing or what I should be doing or what I'm doing that you don't like. You know, I, I don't like those guilt trips. And you know what? Neither do you. We don't like guilt trips. I, I try really hard not to give guilt trips. Now, my kids and the church staff, they may say I'm not trying hard enough. I don't know. But, but you know, I, I, I don't like them. And here's why. Guilt trips are a lot of law. And very little grace. What does that mean? John chapter 1, verse 17 says this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So you have the law of Moses and you have the, the grace and truth of Jesus. How are those things different? James Boyce put it this way. Under the law, God demands righteousness from his people. Under grace, he gives it to people. Under the law, righteousness is based on Moses and good works. Under grace, it is based on Christ and Christ's character. Under law, blessings accompany obedience. Under grace, God bestows his blessings as a free gift. And then he says this, the law is powerless to secure righteousness and life for a sinful race. In other words, the the human race cannot be saved by law. But you cannot be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. You can't. You know why? Because you can't keep them. (laughs) No matter how hard you try, eventually you're going to break one. But see, grace has this completely different story. Listen to it as Paul told the folks at Ephesus. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you are a Christian, if you have been saved, if you've turned from your sin, you've turned to Jesus, you did that by grace. You didn't do it by law. Because law cannot save you. Law can never save. If you are saved, you are saved only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace because there is no other way to be saved except by grace, by grace, by grace. Only by grace. Now what does all of this law and grace have to do with a tree being planted by streams of water. Well, I was listening to a sermon this past week and, and one pastor kind of unfolded it in a, in a similar way to, to how I'm, I'm going to share it now. If you grew up in church over the last 80 years, then more than likely, you have been trying to plant your tree by streams of law instead of tr- streams of grace. Streams of, of law instead of streams of grace. What does that mean? What is that about? Well, if you're a senior adult, the, the names of the events and activities may be different, but the principles that I'm about to share are, are exactly the same. And, and it goes something like this. So you go to camp, and camp is great, and the music is great, and the games are great. And the food is not so great, but the speaker is super great. And his messages every night are just tugging on your heart. And, and you begin to think, man, I, I'm not living right. I'm, I'm not doing right. There needs to be a change. And so on that last night, you you go forward and you make a decision and you come home from camp and, and the, this, this decision is announced to the church and the church claps and you're excited and, and man, you start reading your Bible and you start digging in and you are full gear for God and then school starts. And, and you're back around some of those friends that were not at camp. And this new schedule of life gets you out of gear and you, you kind of quit reading your Bible like you were during the summer and, and your, your, your love for God, it begins to fade pretty fast. But don't, don't worry, don't worry because the fall retreat is right around the corner. And the fall retreat is great. The music's great, the games are great, the, the speaker's great, the food is a little better. You know, it, it's fantastic. It's this great retreat weekend and, and you get close to God again and, and you leave and, and that retreat has fed you and you're fired up and you're ready to go and you get back home and you're right back in the game. And then the holidays come. And you're just too busy to read the Bible. You're you're just too busy with so many you're too busy sometimes to even make it to church. And that love for God, that, that fire you had for God, it it begins to fade. But but it's okay, don't worry. Disciple Now is right around the corner. And D-Now is, is great, and, and man, the, the food is great because you're staying in somebody's home, it's fantastic, and, and, and the people are great, and your leader, your house leader is fantastic, and they have this, this great message, and, and you're really listening to those little sermonettes all weekend long, and, and boy, you are fired up, and you are back in the game. You can't wait, and you leave D-Now, and you're ready to go. And then spring break hits. <laughs> and, you know, you're not at school, and you go out of town with your friends, and, and all of a sudden, just in one week's time, you're out of gear again. And that love for the Bible, that love for God's word, it, it begins to fade. But hey, don't worry, camp is right around the corner. And we do this over and over and over again. We stay on that roller coaster. We ride it and we ride it and we ride it. And then we go off to college. And maybe we go to a few Christian events here or there, but, but maybe we don't. And then we get out of college and, and you know, we get married and, and we're still young and, and we do our own thing because it's just, we, we want to have fun, you know. We, we don't want to live, you know, by all the rules of the church. We're just going to do our own thing. And then you have a kid and it's like, ah, oh, you know what, maybe... Maybe we should go to church. Yeah. Let's go find a church. So you find a good church with a a good children's program and everything's fantastic for five, six, seven, or eight years. And and then, you know, you you get the vacation house at the lake or at the beach or in the mountains. And and then travel ball starts. And or you know, sometimes you just want to stay at home and, and just relax and have brunch. And then we get bitter at the church for expecting us to always be there. I don't have to be a be at church, to be a Christian, and we get bitter at all the expectations that are supposed to go along with what it means to be a Christian, and we don't like the laws of the church. We don't, we don't like that the church expects us to be involved and to be a part or, or to tithe or, or to do anything. We, we just don't like all those laws, but what we're actually doing is we've created a whole new set of laws The laws of sports, the laws of hobbies, the laws of brunch, the laws of leisure, the laws of vacation. And we worship those laws. And we reject the laws of God because they just don't apply and they just don't matter in my life today. And you know what we're really doing all that time? We are deconstructing our souls away from grace the the thing that our soul longs for the most that grace we are deconstructing our life away from grace how do we do that because here's the thing happy and blessed and fortunate and satisfied and content is the man or the woman or the boy or girl that wakes up every morning and whispers to their soul again, by grace, I have been saved. By grace, I have been saved. Happy and content and fortunate and satisfied is the man or woman or the boy and girl that that wakes up every morning and they get their Bible and they plug their life into a local church, not because they have to, but because they get to. Because they wake up in the morning every day and remember, I was dead in my sins, but God made me alive. And before they even get their coffee, their their minds are percolating with these words. I once was lost, but now I'm found. A religious system that is defined by going from one event to the next, or or even from one Sunday to the next, is a system that by design will create stress and aggravation and bitterness and frustration that will wear your soul slap out. Now, does that mean camps and retreats in D now are bad? No. Part of the reason that I'm your pastor is because of how God reached my life through camp and how he reached my life through Disciple Now, through how he reached my life through fall retreats and, and through Sunday to Sunday. So, no, those things aren't bad. But those things are not designed to be the only definitions of our faith. They're really designed to be boosters or initiators or refreshers of our faith. See, every one of those things that I ever went to was was boosting me toward the Lord, boosting me toward the next day of, of wanting to follow the Lord. I wasn't hanging my whole life just on those moments, they were part of the picture of what God was doing. But those things need to be initiators and boosters. Because otherwise, we will set ourselves up for failure. It it usually sounds, here's how we say it. If we could just get them to come on Sunday morning, if we could just get them to come to camp, if we could just get them to come to the retreat, if we could just get them to come to disciple now, then I know something will happen. But here's what the Word of God says. Blessed and happy and content and satisfied is the man or woman or the boy or the girl that every day their life is planted by streams of water. In other words, what we most want to do is not train anyone to desperately need Sunday morning or to desperately need camp. We want them to desperately need this beautiful, mighty, powerful God that we call the great I Am. We want to help people delight in the Lord. And that he would be where their life is planted. Why has God designed the Bible, his book, to be the most powerful way to rescue and reach and challenge and encourage and comfort and sustain people? I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know why God did it that way. But I know he did and I'm so glad he did. Because like many of you, I have learned in my life that his truth, his word, it is sweeter than honey. It is finer than gold. But we don't always believe that, do we? Some days we got a little Adam and Eve in us, right? Some days we're not really convinced of truth. And we start thinking, I don't know, did God really say I couldn't do this? Did, did God really say I couldn't go there or, or watch this? Did, did God really say that I shouldn't pay this or, or say this? I mean, did God really say that? What we're doing is we're trying to convince ourselves that what we want to do and, and our feelings, our law is okay. And, and God's law is not necessary. And listen, that's when things get sad and messy. Hayden Nesbitt works with Campus Outreach in Lexington, Kentucky. He said this, After sin entered the world, Adam and Eve's response to hearing God's voice in the garden was to hide. The beauty of words and the glory of hearing God speak was twisted and marred. It's such a sad picture. It's like the, the beauty of being in communication and conversation with God after sin was, ooh, Nope, I want to stay away from God. He goes on, We're afraid of the Bible because of our sin. We live with guilt and shame over our shortcomings. And the one voice that can speak peace into our condemnation remains unopened and unheard. We run from our Bibles. For the sake of Pete, don't run from your Bible for the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your, your family and your friends, for the sake of your fellow church members and lost people in this community and in the world. Don't run from your Bible. Stories told of an operation that was occurring in the experienced surgeon. He turned to one of the medical interns and he said, who is the most important person in the operating room? And the intern kind of looked at him and was a little caught off guard. He was thinking, well, I mean, he is, but I don't think he wants me to say that. So he kind of scoured the room and decided to play it safe. He said, the nurses that, that help you, you know, with all of the surgery. The surgeon shook his head and he said, no, the most important person in the operation room is the patient. Friend, you're you're the patient. And the most important individual resource in your life is the Bible. If you're a Christian, the most important individual resource in your life is the Bible. If you're not a Christian, the most important individual resource in your life is the Bible. Test us on that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one from here today or come find me after. We'll get you one. Just, just test us on that. In, in some way, plant yourself by the streams of, of God's truth and just see if you don't discover the reality of God's book in your life. If you're not a Christian you decide to read the Bible, start with the book of John. You can look and see all these different signs that were pointing to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you decide to start reading the Bible, then then read through the Psalms and discover how contagious it is to take your sorrow to the one true living God and find hope. So the psalmist did over and over and over again. So what happens when a tree is planted by water? What, What happens when a person begins to delight themselves in the truth of God's word? That's what the psalmist says. He goes on to say, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In our area of the world, we, we know that we can get peaches off the peach trees from, you know, May to August. From apple trees, we can get apples from, you know, August, November, somewhere around there. We, we understand what it means to, to get fruit off of trees in their season. But notice it says here, and its leaf does not wither. I, I, my thought was like riding by a Christmas tree farm, right? You ride by a Christmas tree farm any time of the year, they always look like Christmas trees, you know? I mean, it always, there's always a little leaf on there. It looks like a Christmas tree. Their, their leaf doesn't wither, so to speak. But maybe a better way to understand this is, is if you're riding through different parts of, of our state, not you know, an hour from here or maybe in parts of Georgia and, and up in, in the Asheville area, Hendersonville area, and you, and you ride by these, these peach farms, you ride by these apple trees and there's no fruit on them, do not assume that those trees are dead because they're not. And the same is true for a person who is planting their life by the truth of God's word. See, sometimes you're going to feel like there's no fruit in your life. And sometimes you're going to feel like spiritually you are just withering away. But if you are in Christ, that is impossible. It's impossible. Sarah Haggerty is a wife and mom to six kiddos. She's written two books. I love the the titles of her books. The first one is this, Every Bitter Thing is Sweet. Her second book is called Unseen, The Gift of Being Hidden in a World That Loves to be Noticed. I haven't read either one, but I think I want to. She wrote an article a couple of years ago. The title of the article was How to Survive a Spiritual Winter. It's winter, as much as winter can be in Columbia, it's winter right now. And, and some of you maybe are in a, a winter time of life. Your, your heart, your mind, and your soul are, are living in a bit of a, a winter. This is what she wrote. A tree doesn't survive the winter without healthy roots. Neither do we. And that's not just a, a catchy soundbite she put out on Twitter. It's something that she learned from extremely difficult moments in life. Now, I think her life can help you this morning, help you with the situation you're in right now, or help you with one of the difficulties that all of us will face in life. And so we're gonna step into Sarah's story just, just for a few moments and, and listen in to how she can help us. Her and her husband had moved to her parents' house in Ohio. They were living in the basement, her father had developed a, a brain disease. It was rapidly moving, and, and he didn't have too long to live. And so they went to help out, and this is what she writes. I couldn't escape this season. I had entered into a spiritual winter. What I didn't know then was that this was a holy winter. God was doing something underground that I couldn't see. In our early 30s, our friends were taking active steps towards impacting the world for God, sharing the gospel with neighbors over shared meals, moving into impoverished parts of a city with their hammers and their prayers, and starting foundations to release women from bondage. Their friends were doing some major things, and she said this, this while I was cooking tomato soup and playing, I think it's euchra? I never played it, so if I'm saying it wrong, sorry. Playing euchra in my parents' kitchen, watching my once strong daddy die, it all seemed so unfair. In my prime, I was unable to alleviate the pain for the man who'd raised his little girl to believe that life had no limits. My offering was now a cup of soup. Yet, it was in the dark basement of my parents' home, Listening to my dad restlessly putter upstairs through the dark night, that I started to see winter as holy. She says this. Psalm 1 talks about the man who meditates day and night on the Lord. This tree is disrobed in winter. The tree of, of the man who's meditating, who's planted himself, that that tree, it's disrobed in winter. But it's not dead. Motionless with roots resting and waiting, it ever so slowly grows. The tree prospers in winter, fulfilling its God intended purpose, though to the unknowing eye it sure looks barren. We see a prospering life in God akin to the opulent tree in early spring with leaves and fruit intertwined. We forget that this blooming comes forth because of the preparation that winter provides. Again, just because you don't see the apples on the tree doesn't mean that tree is dead. She goes on, that holy winter when I felt hidden, unseen by friends who weren't familiar with long hours of caregiving, passing my days without visible accomplishments and apparent fruit. Anybody there this morning? I started to see that I could cultivate an unseen private life in God. My roots were still alive. In the basement, underground seasons of my life, God's word and his whisper became fresh to me. I wanted it not so that I could teach it or share it or sermonize it, but because I was thirsty, so thirsty. During my daddy's restless nights, I needed God to highlight a phrase from his word to sustain my little girl heart. I wasn't changing the world. I was changing my parents' laundry. But through it, God was changing me. Meditating on God's word, singing it, crying over the pages, taking my angry heart to his word for answers. And asking for a surprise rush of his spirit's lifting took on new meaning when I was winterized. And then she says this, in the winter, I fell in love. In the winter, she fell deeper in love with God. She didn't decide to quit going to church. She didn't check out on her Bible because there was difficulty. All the more, like the psalmist, she took her sorrow and she ran to God. She ran to him. What does that love in God produce? Listen to the last thing the psalmist says here. And in whatever he does, he prospers. you have it, folks. If you will read your Bible, you'll get rich. You'll get lots of money. That's what that means. No, it's not what it means at all. This is what it means. And don't miss the simplicity of this. For your soul to prosper means that your soul is right with God. And if your soul is right with God, it does not matter what else happens in the world for your soul. Sure, it matters. We have to deal with it. We have to go to the hospital. We have to go to work. We have to deal with a difficult spouse or a rebellious child. We have to care for those aging parents. We have to sort through the, the chaos that happens in our government. But when it comes to our soul, our soul is safe. It is always prospering because it is in Christ. That's prospering. Whatever notion you have of, of prospering that's outside of that will create stress in your life. If your only concept of prospering is making sure that you get a good education and a good job with good benefits and a good retirement, you will get stressed out. I'm confessing for all of us there. But if your definition of prospering is my soul is right with the living God, then my friend, in all seriousness, you will have what you need most in this world. I'm so thankful for Keith Getty and Stuart Town, and we sing this often, but I I think think this is the fourth or third verse of, of this hymn to me says beautiful reality about what it means to prosper. This is what the song says. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. This is is why I prosper. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. That is prospering. That is what it means to prosper. That on any given moment, no matter what you read on social media, no matter what email you get, no matter what your spouse or your child or your boss or anyone else says to you, you can stand on the sidewalk, you can stand in the kitchen, you can stand on the campus, and you can say, no power of hell can pluck me from God. That is prospering. That's what it means to prosper. And the wise man and the wise woman, they take God's word and they go plant themselves by that stream and they say, God, bless me with this truth. Because my life is hard and I need to know that something is prospering. Sarah wrote on a little card, a little note card, a Bible verse, and she stuck it on the kitchen sink. It stayed there before her dad died and long after her dad died. It was the verse that she used the most. It's Isaiah 45, 3. She had it written from the King James, New King James Version, so I'm going to read it from there. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. In the winter, in the basement underground I will keep telling you I am your God this is what she says now I see that it all proved true he cultivated my roots in winter and gave me treasures that are still producing fruit within me and it wouldn't have happened without my winters it wouldn't have happened without the basement It wouldn't have happened except for that time that felt like everything was falling apart. And my friend, that is what God's Word can do for your heart. I can't do it. Your Sunday school teacher can't do it. The deacons can't do it. Your parents, your grandparents, nobody can do it. Nobody can do anything for you like what God's Word can do for your heart. It's the most important individual resource in your life. Don't run from it. But rather, be like the man who is full of delight and blessing and happiness and plant your life by the streams of God's living water because only there can you discover that your heart is prospering. And because your heart is in Christ, you will prosper forever.